So we're in the middle of a series called God Encounters, and uh, we are basically just looking at people, men and women from the Bible, and recognizing that the same story of God is being told through every single one of their lives. Is this ringing a little bit? Can you guys hear me okay? This is fine. It's just me. Cool. Um, I'm still getting used to this thing. Sorry. But we look at these characters and we see something really interesting. And I've, over the last two weeks, I, um, I'm, I'm trying to highlight something for us so that we can begin to see this. Every single one of them don't have it together. They're broken people. In fact, they're royal stuff-ups. Just like us. Yeah. And, and I, it blows my mind because every single one of them, I look at it and I go, you should never have been used by God in that way. You had nothing to give, yet God would take them and use them. And not only that, but it's not like when God encountered them, they suddenly got it all sorted and figured out. Actually, even while God was using them, they still made mistakes. <laughs> and so the story of redemption, the story of God's grace, and the story of the gospel is being preached to you through every single life and story that's told in the gospel. And if we would look close enough, we'll realize God is telling his story through his people over and over again, and he wants to tell his story through you. Where we've gone wrong in the Western context is we think that uh, I, am, I have got my story to write on the earth and I'm really hoping that God approves of it. I need the blessing of God on my story because I don't want to just tell his story. I want to be unique in my own story. And the reality is God has made you unique in the manner in which you will express his story, but it's the same story. It's redemption. It's freedom. It's healing. It's wholeness. It's yieldedness. It's a surrendered heart. It's the transforming power of the gospel. Amen. And so we've spoken about Moses. We've spoken about the woman at the well. If you haven't listened to these, go back, catch up on them. We're going to just keep leaning into different people. And um, this week's been an interesting one because there's a few that God's highlighting to me that I've been wanting to teach on, and I'm not sure which one I'm going to do yet. And so we'll just see how it goes. You know, when I was singing Grace... That's not a song, by the way. That was just the Lord leading us in a spontaneous song. But grace, grace in this room, there's nothing that can separate us from you or from Him. Do you know what would happen to your life if you really believed that? Like, and I, I say this even from my own heart together. Do you know what would happen to us when we start to actually believe that there's nothing that separates me from Him? Because my Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that means this, when you were at your worst, and maybe that's now, I don't know where you are in that journey, maybe it's still coming, but even at your worst moment where you would consider your worst, in that moment, he looked at you and said, I want to be one with you. And not only that, but I'm going to actually remove every obstacle so that never again can sin hinder our love. I wrote a song, I had this encounter, I want to talk about encounters because that's the theme of what we're going after. I had this encounter with Jesus in 2019, right before a conference we did called Arise Shine. Actually, it was in the conference, sorry. After the first night, uh, I was sleeping in the loft because we were hosting the guest speakers. And in the middle of the night, I hear singing and I wake up. And, and I, this is one of the only times I've had this, but I saw Jesus sitting at the chair of my desk in the loft while I was sleeping. And he was singing. And I heard the, the tone of his voice singing to me. And he sang this song, and I listened to him sing a song. It's the only song I have that I've written where I know it's not mine. It was his song. I just heard the words, wrote it down, and remembered the melody. And he sang this song, and the song is part, there's a whole bunch of different parts of it, but one of the parts goes, don't you see that you're a bride to me? All the love I have, I pour on you. You move my heart with fierce desire. This love we share is living fire. That's what I heard. And then the chorus, he would sing this, and he, this chorus he sang over me like over and over again. And he was singing this to me. He was going, your beautiful face, your beautiful face. I'm gazing at the splendor of your face. And I began to go, no, your beautiful face. You know, like your beautiful, I'm gazing at your, and he would sing it back. Oh no, your beautiful face. And so we were just calling each other beautiful all night. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing. That's the kind of encounters an intimacy that we're born to experience. Like you're made to know him, not just to experience what he does in a room. And when we talk about encounters, I know there's a lot of people that maybe 
of saying, hey, I've gone after the encounters. Like, you know, I wanted, I'm hungry for encounters. I've gone after encounters and I, I see everyone else having encounters and I don't have encounters. And that's because you're going after encounters. Instead of just going after him and saying, Lord, I really want to know you. I'm hungry to know you. I want to know what you're like. I want to know you in your word. I want to know you in song. I want to know your voice inside of me. I want to know what your presence feels like. I want to know how you move on other people. I want to know how you speak to me through people. I want to know you. I want to learn how to recognize your voice. And when you position your heart in that, in the pursuit of him, his response is encounter. I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks. God always, and you see it throughout all of scripture, he always makes first contact. There's not a single time where man did something first to get God to respond to them. Not one story. Not one. All the doubters, I heard you. Nope. Not one story. Go study it. This is what I'm doing. I'm spending my time doing that. Every single time, God reaches out first. Good example, Abraham, an Iraqi pagan, walking in the mountains, wealthy guy, got his stuff, and God goes, hey, Abraham. I like you. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to use you to bless nations. God actually preaches the gospel to Abraham. He's an Iraqi pagan. He hasn't done anything, but God loves him. And what did Abraham do? He believed and God said, you're righteous because you believe. So if we would actually look at our Bibles, we'll start to see the heart of God and realize there's not a single moment in your life where God's asking you to get it together before he does something. See, okay, let me ask you a question. Does sin stop God from revealing his manifest presence to you? No, right? Please say no. No. Does, does sin stop God from revealing His manifest, that means tangible, presence to you? No. No. So, so if God is not intimidated by your sin, and He's not concerned with your sin being an obstacle because He removed it, what stops us from encountering God? What you believe about Him is the most important thing about you. What you believe about God's nature is the most important thing about you. So here's why God hates sin. Because often when people hear me preach on grace, they'll say, well, you're just enabling sin. Like you just, you don't care about sin. I, I actually don't care about sin. Don't ask me to put the emphasis on something that Jesus took the emphasis off of. And let me tell you why. I'll tell you why God hates sin. God hates sin because of what it does to your head, not his. See, we go, this is, this is what we do with sin. I can't believe that I'm doing this. And the more I try not to do it, the more I do it. Romans 7, Paul describes this to us. And so we get frustrated and we go like, oh, I don't understand why this is a cycle in my life. What keeps happening? I just can't get free. And, and, and then what we do is we stop coming to him. We stop going to him because we think that because I feel this way about sin, he must feel the same way. And because he's perfect and holy, there's no possible way that he's looking at this better than I'm looking at it. Like, if I think it's bad, it must be really bad because I don't even know how bad bad is. <laughs> and so what we do is we run away from God and we don't even know we're doing this. I'll just ask you this question. When last did you have a tangible encounter and experience with God? It's a good indicator. When last did you come into His presence and go, you are here? Now, I ask that question not to bring condemnation, because God never works in condemnation, but it's to bring an indication to your heart of what you believe about Him. Because what happens to us as Christians is we come into the secret place with God, and, and majority of the time we do most of the talking, not a lot of listening, because we're actually trying to convince ourselves we're allowed to be here. Do you get this? We, most, of, most Christians are spending majority of their time with God, not, with, or not listening to God or receiving God, but trying to convince their own hearts that they're allowed to be there. And the Father, is, He's in this space with us, and He's going, I actually have a lot I want to say to you. 
I actually have a lot that I want to do with you. And, and, and you're putting the emphasis on something that I took the emphasis off. See, here's the thing. When we see sin in the church, when leaders make mistakes, when brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers make mistakes, the church panics, and we're seeing this, and I'm not going to mention situations, but there's global stuff going on. We see this. The church panics, and what we do is we feel like we have a moral obligation to deal with sin. Now, suddenly, we have a moral obligation to deal with it the way God would want this to be dealt with because of the pressure of man. And the only reason this stuff is happening is because we're, we're ranking each other's sin as one is worse than the other. And it's not the heart of God, and it's crippling the church. And I feel the, the vengeance of God against this mentality, not against people, but against this thinking pattern. Because God's saying, I did not pay a price for the church to still nitpick and call out each other's sin, punish each other, condemn each other, disqualify each other, instead of walking with one another into wholeness. We are disqualifying leaders, people in the church, Mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, we're disqualifying them from what God's called them to do because they lost their perspective for a moment, made a mistake, maybe even for a season, and yet the responsibility of the church, which is to bring them back into healthy perspective of who Jesus is, we stopped doing that. Now we think it's our job to deal with them. God never asked you or your family or your church or your leaders or any of us to deal with sin. He never did. And you say, well, what about Paul? He's talking about, you know, all these things that's happening in the church. Do you understand that when the church was born, Paul had to actually communicate to the Gentiles who had no background with God what, what perspective of God to have? So let me, let me say it like this. The Jews had history with God. They understood what God was like. They understood His nature. They understood His kindness. They understood how He responded to things. They understood how to handle different stuff. The Gentiles were not like that. In the, in the, the uh, Greek temples, what was going on was crazy. The, the priests of the Greek temples would sleep with hundreds of people as a ritual. They would have these horrible parties. I'm not going to use words because there's kids in the room. They would have these disgusting, horrible parties. They would do blood sacrifices in order to get into, in Ephesus, in order to get into the shopping mall, you had to offer a sacrifice to Caesar. Small little sacrifice. So, so Paul's talking into a context where he's saying, hey, I know you don't have the background of the Jews, of, of God's ways, and, and how he actually built the structures of life and families and, and, and these things. So I'm going to teach you that, hey, it's not okay for you to actually just go and sleep with hundreds of people. It's not okay, like in Corinthians, for you to go and have that really inappropriate relationship with your stepmother. Now that's graphic. It's in your Bible. But let me, let me give you examples. It's not new. Paul was addressing something that's not new because even the people of God, I'll take you back to Samson. Samson's this amazing guy. From birth, the Spirit of God is on him. And it says that as he was growing up, the Spirit of God would stir him up to do certain things. And guess what? He walks into a specific town, sees a prostitute, and goes to sleep with her. Spirit-filled Samson. The church today goes, no way Samson can be spirit-filled. No way God's using Samson. That's insane. He doesn't even know who God is. How could he do that? Now this is what we're doing to each other, and this is what we're doing to leaders, and this is what we're doing to the church. Nitpicking, calling out sin, blaming one another. Instead of doing something way, way better, which is what we're called to as a church, lifting up our gaze, lifting our heads, pointing one another to Jesus and saying, this is the fullness of what Jesus has done. That's what Paul was doing. He was addressing the brokenness of the church, and he was saying, hey, this isn't you. This is this brokenness of, of the, the twisted perversion and things that you were doing of sacrifices and blood and all this stuff. That's not you. It's the same thing. Oh, I don't have time to do this, but I'll just, I'm going to touch on it. It's the same thing where we take one, there's actually two. We take two scriptures about women and we disqualify half the church from the Great Commission. No, Paul said women mustn't speak in church. <sighs> 
We need to go study the context of what he's talking about because remember, Paul's actually writing those letters to a specific people in a specific context who were going through specific stuff. Those women were disrupting because actually in that time, the women were the priests and the men didn't do stuff in the temples. The women would do it. So now what was happening is someone would get up to teach in, in the, the gathering and the women were interrupting and bringing things that were not the truth, not the gospel. And so Paul's addressing that going, hey, don't speak while somebody's preaching the gospel. <laughs> Wait. And maybe don't dress like you used to dress as a temple prostitute in the church. And we take this context, two scriptures, and go, God is against women speaking in the church. So what you're saying is, the God who made man and woman equal in the garden suddenly changed his mind and decided it's, man's, it's men's job to finish the Great Commission. Yet here's the stats. More than double the amount of women to men are serving in the 1040 window right now. There are more women laborers in the 1040 window than there are men. Women are saying yes to the dangerous places more than men. I'm making eye contact with all the men right now. Because I'm a man and I'm going, that's not okay. I celebrate it and I thank God for women who actually have the courage and boldness to stand up in the face of religious, legalistic nonsense and actually just be obedient to the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not woman's lib. I'm not. I'm about the, the model of what Jesus has given us, sons and daughters. Holy Spirit falls on all of us, fills us, uses us for His glory. We're all called to go, right? Some of the, the most anointed preachers I know are women. In fact, the church in Iran is predominantly led by women. Anyway, so I just want to speak to the hearts of men and just say, come on, let's not drop this thing. Let's not abdicate our, our role. Let's not abdicate our responsibility. Amen? So... Paul's addressing these things in the church and people say to me, well, you're just, you're just ignoring scriptures. No, I'm not ignoring scriptures. I will sit with you and go through every single one of them. We can go through it together because here's the thing. God is a consistent God. His heart from the start to the end is communicated consistently. He's not schizophrenic and he doesn't change his mind. So if there's something that seems like it's uh, contradicting who he is, it's just because you're not looking close enough. I'll give you an example People come to me and they say, and I'm dealing with this on a lot of different levels, but I'll give you examples like sickness or divorce or different things that we go like, that's God's, not God's heart. Absolutely, it's not God's heart. Does God want people to be sick? Are there sick people on the earth? So now we have to deal with that. Does God want people to get divorced? But are there people who no longer love each other and can't be together? So what do we do with that? What we can't do is become legalistic people who put standards on each other that actually make us feel broken and messed up and it's all about making, making the standard, reaching the standard, making sure we do it right and then you actually don't know how to follow Jesus, live with Jesus because you're actually so broken, so messed up inside, you don't even know how to respond anymore. But we say, at least you did the right thing. So when people say to me, well, God detests divorce. Yes, he does. He also detests sickness. So just be careful. Let's make sure how we handle divorce and sickness and people dying. When we, it's like, why should that child die? I don't understand that. God, you, did, does God want this child to die? No. So why did it happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we could probably define good and then we'll change the whole perspective on that. But here's the thing. We need Jesus. Everything's built on Jesus. And if we're not being built on Jesus, the whole thing's going to fail anyway. So now you've got marriages not built on Jesus falling apart. But then we say, no, God hates divorce. You just, you just, just stick it out. Fix it. We've got people who are sick. They have sickness in their body. And we're saying to them, well, it must be unforgiveness in your heart. It's unforgiveness. It's the reason you're sick is because you haven't done something right. This is not the heart of God, and my heart is breaking because it's not just in Johannesburg. This is what's going on across the world. We're holding each other to, to legalistic standards, to the law, and it's going to kill us. 
If we're a supernatural people, should we not have supernatural expectations? Can I say this to you? The dream of God in your life is not based on whether you get your situation or circumstance right. Are you hearing me? Like I'm saying this today from a pastor's heart because I really, really care about our community. I really, really care about the global church. I really care about the state of the church. When the church stops encountering Jesus, we start putting legalistic demands on one another. We forget that it's the presence of Jesus inside of us that makes the wrong things right. I don't know if you're hearing me. So Samson can go and sleep with a prostitute and then wants to be with this crazy woman who literally is like intentionally trying to kill him over and over again. Delilah, she's asking, tell me how to rid you of your strength over and over and over and over and over. And she eventually gets the answer out of him and then she's the reason that he actually dies. And Samson is just, he's just carrying on. Like, I mean, he's a guy's spirit filled yet really dumb. And yet God used him. And you got David. I use David all the time because here's David and I saw something. Please forgive me if you posted it. Um, I saw it. It's all over the place. It's been literally posted everywhere. So please do not take offense what I'm about to say. But, you know, we, we, we talk about David, how he, he killed uh, Goliath, but he lost to Bathsheba. And if we don't kill our desires, we'll lose. To, and I get it. Like, I, I understand where it's coming from. I understand. But it's emphasizing the wrong thing. God didn't look at David's failure with Bathsheba as the thing that destroyed him because he still called him a man after God's own heart after that. David's mistakes didn't mess up David's life. He had to go through some stuff and, and had to maybe make things right in certain ways and, and, and honor the people that he had hurt. But the reality is, it didn't change God's heart towards him and it didn't change the victory that David walked in. Because when we talk about David now, who do, what do we talk about? We don't talk about Bathsheba. And here's the beautiful thing. I've said this multiple times. David murdered Bathsheba's husband, super intense. But yet he, even after the mistake, he marries her, has a child with her, and Jesus is of that lineage. Jesus is of the lineage of broken people making mistakes, but seeing the redemption of God make all things new. That's the God we follow. That's the God we serve. Uh, is that the gospel we believe? Is that the gospel we preach? Are you with me? The way to freedom is not to try and deal with your hidden sin. In fact, the way to being trapped and stuck is to highlight and edify your hidden sin and go, I'm supposed to fix this. How do I fix this? I'm supposed to make this right. I'm supposed to do this right. You know, God would want me to do this right. And, and if God, and I, it's all sincere. Like, it's just that we missed the gospel because the gospel wasn't Jesus coming and saying, guess what? I've come to give you a high five and tell you it's going to be okay. And I've given you the tools to do it better this time. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus coming and saying, it's okay, I wiped away the, the past ones, now you've got a second chance, let's do it better this time. The gospel is not Jesus coming and saying, it's okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just help you by showing you, because so, in the past you didn't seal your sins, now I'm gonna show you where they actually are so you can deal with it. This is not the heart of God. Jesus does this, he goes, I don't want you looking at it. I don't want you and your internal perspective looking at your sin and your brokenness. I don't want it. I want you to look at me. And the more that you understand God's heart for you, the easier it is to have God's heart for others. The reason why we don't know how to have God's heart for each other is because we haven't yet received His heart for me. If I know how I've been forgiven, if I know how I've been redeemed, I know how to forgive others. Because if there's one who has a right to hold it against us, he doesn't. And here's the beauty, is that we don't have a right to hold anything against one another. 
because you're just as bad. But the thing is, it doesn't mean, well, just, you know, move on and whatever. It's like we have this thing called a soul and there's emotions and there's hurt and there's pain. And this is the promise of Jesus. He's the comforter. Holy Spirit is the comforter. He's the counselor. He's the one, Saul sang about it earlier. He's the counselor. He comes into the midst of pain and emotion and he counsels you to bring the renewed mind. He's going, I'm going to show you how to process this pain, how to process this hurt, how to process this trauma because I want you to see what I see. And that doesn't mean that the outcome looks like what you thought it was going to look like. It means whatever the outcome is, Christ in me, the hope of glory, I'm living his story, I'm living his dream, now I'm rhyming. And we're just going to keep going in what God's called us to do. And maybe it looks like nothing I thought, maybe the dream of God in my life didn't look like what I dreamt it would look like 15 years ago. Or maybe that prophetic word that I got 15 years ago, I actually ran ahead with it and designed the whole thing instead of yielding to his voice and letting him lead me through it. Are you with me? Is everyone okay? Why am I saying this? I can just see it happening. It's like suddenly there's this thing about exposing that's hitting the church. And I just want to say this very strongly for 24-7. God does not expose sin. So when you see the church exposing sin, it's not Him. It's not God. God does not expose sin because if He exposes the sin of one, He must expose the sin of all. And my Bible says that all have fallen short. So what makes any of us think we are any better or any superior to anyone else? We all need the blood of Jesus. We all need to be washed. We all need Him. Amen? Amen. So what does the church look like? Because the church has made herself busy with a legalistic uh, response to so many things. And so when we let that go, what does the church look like? They look like a people with a culture of grace that are seeing the broken, the lost, and the forgotten. The ones who are uh, the absolute dropouts, nobody thinks they can even do anything. Those people come in and they encounter people that don't look at their mess-ups. And it's like, what, what should happen is people come into the church and they're like, I'm really nervous that you're going to see my mess. And, and I, as a pastor, I have this often. People come in and they feel obliged to tell me how messed up they are when they join the church. I just need you to know I'm the worst of the worst. Here's actually my, here's my, my track record. I'm broken, man. You don't, like, I'm just here to receive Jesus. And that's beautiful. In some ways, it's a sense of humility, but it's not the fullness of the gospel. People got to come into the church and go like, when I was afraid that I was going to be exposed and judged, I came in to see a group of people that all know their need for the mercy and blood of Jesus. And I looked at them and they're all washed. And because they're all washed, their lenses are washed and they see through washed eyes. So now what you've got is a church that go, I'm going to call out the destiny of God. So people come, they go, I need an accountability partner. And I go, yes, amen, let's do it. Let's have coffee. Okay, well, this week, this is how many times I stuffed up. Whoa, I don't want to know that. I want to hold you accountable to what God says about you. Guess what? Do you understand that you're born for encounters with a living God? Have you experienced Jesus this week? Do you know that he wants to speak to you, that his voice is actually there to lead you? How about we talk about how to hear God? But you don't understand, I made all these mistakes. No, don't worry about the mistakes. I made mistakes, you make mistakes, we all make mistakes. You'll probably make another one tomorrow. So here's the thing. Stop looking at the mistakes, keep looking at Jesus. Guess what happens? Guess what happens? You become what you behold. The answer to sin is not our best attempts. It's the cross. And the church doesn't see it. We don't realize this. We're deviating from the message of the gospel. We are deviating from the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. When you make a mistake, cross and resurrection. See, that, that produces a people in a church that run to the Father that don't run away. I want to ask you this question. Have you been trying to seek the Lord in this last season? And when you get there, you go like, well, I'm trying, but I just don't feel Him anymore. I just don't feel God. I just don't. It's like He's not there, or it's like I. There's just something. There's a disconnect. I don't feel, I'm not hearing Him. I want to tell you it's not on His end. Simply because the way you're seeing Him right now in this moment is not the way He wants to be seen. Your perspective of Him is going to affect the way that you hear Him. And a lot of the time we're running to that place for answers to our stressful problems. 
what we've done is we've elevated the situation and the circumstance above intimacy with him. And we think that if I get the answer to my broken situation, that that's what's going to make things okay. But the thing is, in this life, we're going to go through difficult things. You're always going to need answers. You're always going to need help. But the one thing that carries us through all of this stuff and makes us like Jesus more and more every day is intimacy and relationship with Him. You are made for encounters with God and He is reaching out every day into our hearts, even from our hearts, from the inside of us, reaching out going, I want to minister to you today. I want to reveal myself to you today. I want you to experience me today. I want you to know me. Does this make sense? I want to... I'm going to highlight two people real quick in five minutes. No, in 10 minutes. Is everyone okay? Are you hearing my heart? If I'm, if I'm offending you, if I'm offending you, it's not my intentions. It's not my desire to offend you, but it is sometimes necessary. Because it offends me. Like I'm still, I'm still on that journey. We're all on this journey together of going, God, I'm reminded every day that you're actually that good. And it, it messes with my head. It messes with my perspective because every time I come into agreement with the heart of God, I'm offended by how good he is, but then I start to feel free again. You with me? So there's two people I want to highlight. And Lord, I ask that you lead me in this. I want to highlight in John 8, the woman that was caught in adultery, but I want to bring it from just a different perspective. Because can I just remind you that Jesus said, so we go like, the woman caught in adultery. It's like, okay, so she was the adulterer. But we've, we've got to read this in the context of Jesus in the Beatitudes, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, sorry. He said this. He said, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've al- oh, sorry, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So here's what Jesus said at, on, a, on the Sermon on the Mount. You're all adulterers. what he said. You go, no, no, no. He He said, please tell me the air cons are coming on. Thank you, Jesus. He said this. He said, if you've even looked, if you've even had the thought, you're the same as the one who acted on it. Hello. That's offensive. So I don't like the way that they've titled this where they go, John chapter 8, the adulterous woman. Because I'm like, everyone around her were all adulterous, except for Jesus, they were all adulterous. But here's what it should have been, the woman who was exposed. I want to just describe this to you. This woman, are you okay for 10, 15 minutes? Is everyone okay? It's 2 minutes to 11, I'm going to go 15 minutes. Especially because there's a bunch of people who drove an hour and a half, an hour to get here. And so did Luke, as usual, every week. But so the reality is, it's okay. 15 minutes is all right. Okay? If you need to go, you can go. I won't be offended. So here's this thing. We read this story, and the story tells us that this woman was caught in the act of adultery, where she was caught with a man, and, and they literally pulled her out of the bed in a sheet and dragged her into the temple courts to test Jesus. That's the story. The story is not that there was a woman caught in adultery. There were many. The story is that they exposed her in the temple courts. In the place that's supposed to be the house of prayer for all nations, they turned it into a judgmental, legalistic, fill in the blank with an adjective. So they drag her out, but now I want you to just picture, this is a real woman. This is a woman who has a family. We don't know if she had kids or if she, we don't know But I want to just say, take your life and insert it right there. This is a a person who has a story, who had experienced life and was not trying to hurt anybody. And so the Pharisees, the legalists, they catch her, drag her, Don't even, I mean, literally, she's just probably covered in a sheet. And they drag her before Jesus in front of a whole crowd. This is the spirit of religion, and I hate it with every fiber in my being. 
and they throw on the floor and they question Jesus and they say, the law says the right thing to do is stone this woman for what she's done. There's nothing wrong with that statement according to the law that God gave. Here's the problem. They don't know why the law was given. Because the law was not given for us to achieve it. It was given for us to realize our need for Jesus. And so instead of seeing and recognizing their need for a Messiah that they were waiting for, who was standing right in front of them, they chose to expose another to make themselves look good. That's the spirit of religion. And so I love Jesus. This is one of my favorite stories about Jesus because you see his nature here on display. And he's so secure and he's so strong and he's a manly man. And he's not intimidated by the crowd. And he's not intimidated by the fact that everybody's looking at him. In fact, he, in a moment, he does something that moves me. He, I, I feel, this is what I feel when I think about this story. I'm like, I picture Jesus, the, 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 the righteous anger of God rising up in Jesus, which wasn't to get loud and shout at people. Everybody felt this righteous anger that they had the audacity to do what they've just done. And the kindness of Jesus is that what he does, this blows my mind. They throw her on the floor in front of him. There's a crowd around her. They're all looking and the Pharisees are saying, she needs to be stoned. What do you say? Are you going to contradict the law? And they've put this exposing attention on this woman as if she's worse than them. And Jesus does something so beautiful. And everyone misses this because we go, what was he writing in the sand? And I go, why was he writing in the sand? We have this question because like, Jesus bends down and he starts to write something in the dust. And we, we're asking this question like, what did he write? What did he write? But the Bible doesn't tell you, so you don't need to know. But I ask this question. Why did he write in the sand? And I, I, I sat with the scripture a while ago and I said, Jesus, I, I want to know you. Why did you write in the sand? This is what he said to me. He said, because I took the attention off of her and I put it on me. So instead of going, yes, you know what? You guys are right. Thanks for catching me out. Now I need to figure out how to solve this situation. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes, you're all looking at her as if she's worse than you, and I'm going to put the attention on me, so I'm going to do something weird. So he gets down, he starts to write in the dust. And suddenly they're not looking at the woman covered in a sheet who's now weeping on, because she knows her mistakes, or she knows her brokenness. He, they now shift their gaze from her to him, and they're going, what the heck is he doing? Like we just asked him a question, he's writing in the sand. What is, he, what is he writing? And now they're all looking. And now this woman is going, the eyes just lifted off of me and it's on him. And then he does this, man, this is like brave heart stuff. I love Jesus so much. Sheesh, man. I, he goes, okay. We can stone her, but here's how it's going to go. The person who has no sin, you throw the first stone. So what does Jesus do? Again, he takes the emphasis off of her and he puts it on everybody's need. This is our Jesus. This is your king, your Messiah. He goes, I'm going to take your eyes off of her because what you're doing here is ungodly. It's not my heart. In fact, I never do this. What you've just done, I never do this. And so Jesus goes, I want to show you that actually what you've just done, you all deserve this. So if you don't have any sin, you throw the first stone. And it traps them in this place of exposing self-righteousness. And they go, uh, from the oldest to the youngest, I love this, because the older guys know how much sin they have. And they're like, and the younger ones, they're still fired up until they realize, oh wait, actually, five minutes ago, I had a look at that girl walking down the street and thought, wow. So stones fall. Rocks start to fall because Jesus is not a stone thrower. He's not, he doesn't stone people. He saves. And so they all drop it. And then this is so beautiful. Jesus, he says, where are they? He says, does no one condemn you? Why is he saying it like that? He's saying, does no one condemn you? He's highlighting the fact that, hey, what was meant to be a condemning moment, do you feel any condemnation right now? And she's going, no, Lord, I, no, I, it's lifted. And he goes, well, I don't condemn you. We need to emphasize this. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. 
This is her encounter with Jesus, the first time she's encountering him. She's having an encounter with the Messiah, and what he's doing is he's saying this, I never expose. I always cover, protect, redeem, and make whole. There's a man when Jesus is hanging on the cross there's two thieves that are hanging next to him. Luke 23 verse 39 one of the criminals who had been hanged on a cross beside Jesus kept hurling abuse to Jesus saying are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us from death. But the other one beside him rebuked this guy, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We are suffering justly because we're getting what we deserve for what we've done. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I assure you and I most solemnly say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's the thing. Here's a man who's a sinner that deserves death, just like every single one of us hanging next to Jesus, and there's two types of sinners, the self-righteous ones and the dependent ones. One of them's hurling threats at Jesus like, but I thought you were God. Prove yourself to me. How many people in your life have you heard going like, well, if God's real, why doesn't he just show himself? Why doesn't he just prove himself to me? And then on the other side, you've got someone who's going, don't you recognize who this is? He can do whatever he wants. I'm just asking one simple thing. Will you remember me? Will you remember me? Jesus, when you go into your kingdom, will you remember me? And this is what I love. The guy's done nothing. <laughs> In fact, I heard a preacher, <laughs> he shared about this guy once where he was like, you know, when he got to heaven, like he probably didn't even know what, what heaven was supposed to be or was like. In fact, uh, he tells a joke and he's like, Peter's probably standing at the gates and he's going, so, you know, when did you get saved? And he's like, um, about 30 seconds ago. Oh, it's like, you know, so, you know, did you, did you get the theology of justification by faith? And he's like, what the heck is that? And did you raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers? Did you do the things that Jesus said? Uh, no, in fact, I've only known him for about 30 seconds. And it's like, you almost want to go, well, okay, cool. You get the shack at the back, um, at the back of the corner of heaven, you know. No, Jesus goes, today you'll be with me in paradise. Here's the interesting thing about paradise. Paradise, the word for paradise actually means garden. And it's mentioned in the beginning, it's mentioned at the cross, and it's mentioned at the end. What this man, what Jesus says to this man, it highlights something for me. Here's the desire of God. I want to be with you. Everything else comes from that place, but you are not measured by what you do for me. You're measured by oneness. You're measured by, did you believe what I've done, what I've said? Here's a guy who had 30 seconds, and all he did is he said, Jesus, remember me. You're God. I know you're God. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Remember me. When you go into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, absolutely. That's why I'm here. Jesus goes, not only am I going to remember you today, you'll be with me in paradise. So, you look at that guy's encounter and you go, well, all he had in his life was a 30-second encounter with Jesus. All it took was a 30-second encounter with Jesus to spend eternity in paradise. What are you measuring your life by? What are you measuring your life by? See, Jesus wasn't, while he was hanging on the cross in the most painful experience that anyone could go through, he didn't go, well, you know what? I have to welcome you in because my father's good. But actually, let me just tell you, you disgusting heathen, you sick criminal who's done all these things, who deserves to die. I hope you know what this cost me. Yet that's the attitude of the church. I'm disgusted and I'm just, I can't believe this and whatever. It's like, how dare we? If there was anyone who had a right to have that attitude, it was Jesus and he didn't. He had a minute, whatever it was, with this guy and he forgave him. And he said, not only do I forgive you, I want to be with you. That's our Jesus. So when we have encounters 
with God, it's really important for us to understand the God we're encountering. I'm worried, I'm nervous, my heart is sore that there are people in the Western church, modern day church, even in the East, that are encountering an ideology of Jesus that's legalistic, controlling, manipulative, and harmful. And it's not the purity of the gospel, it's not Him. And I don't, my desire is that if you are in 24-7 church, that you would never come to a gathering and encounter a message that leaves you walking out, you're feeling like you need to get your act together. You need to fix that stuff, get it sorted out. No, I want you to come into a room like this and encounter the Jesus that never exposes. He is the King of glory who never exposes sin because He dealt with it. God never asked us to deal with sin. He dealt with it. He took it on the cross. He became you. There was a divine exchange. He became you so that you could be in Him. So you go, well, how's the, like if we're not trying to do the right thing, how are we supposed to be any different to the world? Let me ask you this question. In all your efforts to do the right thing, how's it going? How's it going? Is the world looking at you and going, you're impressive. No, they're not. They're actually seriously annoyed by you. They don't want to be around you and they're fed up with what you have to say. Why? Because Jesus wasn't walking around telling people to get their act together. Jesus was walking around saying, I'm here. The one you need, I'm him. And then when he puts the spirit of Jesus inside of us, who do you think produces fruit? John 15, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Can I say this? I'm nearly done. Still got four minutes. Does it not scare you that today an entrepreneur can start a church and get the capital, get the building, do the awesome signage, phenomenal marketing, website, advertising, best hall, kids ministry, serve team, do all of it brilliantly, fill the room, and yet God can be not even present, and yet majority of Christians will come into that setting, sit there and go, yeah, I enjoyed that, that was good. I'm so glad they hired that worship leader because it was phenomenal. And man, our, our pastor is such a good communicator. And I just love the way he articulates things. And so I can come to church every Sunday and be grateful that I have a great vibey place to come and yet potentially never experience or encounter Jesus, the living God who changes our lives. And do you know why he changes our lives? See, when I say he changes our lives, what we hear is he stops me from sinning. And that's part of it. Because the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we become more like Him. But when I say He changed our lives, what if I actually mean you didn't have Him, you didn't hear His voice, you didn't know Him, and now you do? What if a changed life is someone who walks with God? And what if walking with God means that sometimes you might trip, but you're still walking? And, and the, the difference is when you tripped the last time, you didn't know how to get back up. This time, you've got someone who's holding you. And he's taking you from glory to glory. What if the emphasis of the gospel is not, the, is, not the, is not that you would stop sinning, but that you would start living in him? What if, what if we would never, in fact, I'm not what if, you will never walk free if you continue in the gospel thinking it's about trying to stop sinning. I'm, I'm seeing, I, can I just say this? Please be careful with social media and YouTube right now. I'm listening to stuff, and the more I'm listening to it, the more I'm feeling convicted to just stay away from this stuff. Because what's worrying is I'm seeing pastors and leaders and these podcasts, there's a podcast for everything right now, uh, podcasts and discussions and these things happen, and some of them are phenomenal, and then there's some that make me nervous where we go, you know, pastors getting up going, I'm really concerned about the worship industry right now because of these things that are happening. And then they're talking to someone from the industry, and they're going, yeah, what's disgusting is just the amount of sin I've seen in this industry, and, you know, just the lack of accountability of that sin, and... And, and it sounds good. It sounds good. It sounds like, thank God, there's leaders who are calling out the sin and all of this nonsense. 
It's just not Jesus. I don't think Jesus is looking at the state of the church and going, I am so sick of the sin in the church. I'm so sick of it. They just keep sinning. It's like they didn't even hear what, I, what I've done. It's like they hear the gospel and they just keep saying, I'm just so sick of it. There needs to be accountability. We need to deal with this sin. That's not Jesus. I think Jesus looks at the state of the church and he goes, look at me. Look at me. Have you seen my eyes? Have you seen what I behold, what I look at? Because when I look at you, I'm not looking at your sin. How are we going to get every tribe, tongue, and nation to sing and to rejoice in the finished work of the gospel if you're stuck in yourself? Because I didn't die for you to stay in the same perpetual cycle of, of, of self-analysis. Uh, it's, the, it's the analysis, what? Uh, I forget the, the saying, analysis of paralysis. Paralyzes you and keeps you stuck. He didn't die for that. Because if, if that was the gospel, we would never have seen Paul do what he did. Because I just want to remind you, when Paul got saved, no one wanted anything to do with him. They were so afraid of this guy because he'd killed people. But there's one guy, Barnabas, and he got it. Barnabas was like, this guy's encountered Jesus, and he's just like all of us. We need to be people like Barnabas. Because what, what I love about Barnabas is he was given the task of fathering Antioch but he remembered the call of God on Paul, who was younger than him. And so he goes to fetch Paul and he goes, the church is about the redemption of the destiny of God in people's lives. So the very people that Paul had put, the, put fear in it and they'd run all the way to Antioch from Jerusalem to Antakya, it is far. They ran in fear. The guy who made them run, Barnabas goes, he's going to lead us. Oh, that the church would be like Antioch. Oh, I'm not interested in Antioch. I don't want to be Antioch church. Well, you're saying you don't want to be the church because it's not an Antioch church. It's just that the church in Antioch understood what it meant to be the church. I'm not the Antioch guy. I just talk about Antioch because it's in the Bible. But here's this community that are after the redemption of the destiny of sons and daughters. And a guy like Paul, who was the reason for their fear, became their leader because of redemption because of a people who could go, we see Christ, we don't see the past. We don't see sin, we see Christ. Does that make sense? I am in awe of the mercy of Jesus and the love of Jesus. See, if the gospel doesn't put fire in your eyes and fire in your heart, I don't think we're preaching the full gospel. If the gospel doesn't make you, you know, earlier, sorry, I I want to explain this. I was singing and going like, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And, and I, we're all on a journey, including myself, because I don't always feel like dancing, right? But something happens when I start to think about what that means for my life. Because it's difficult to hear the gospel. It's difficult to believe the gospel and be mediocre. Right? It's difficult to just be like, well... Cool, man. I like this. I like this church. I like this gospel. It's good. Makes me feel a bit better. No, what the gospel does is, is it puts us in a place of going, wow, I'm so, I'm so eternally grateful for the divine exchange. Because not only did he set me free from my sin, that was step one. Step two was he filled me with himself so I could do the things of his kingdom. Like the church needs to get out of the sin thing and into the kingdom thing and start beginning to live out what he's called us to do. To let go of the insecurities because insecurities come from either the sin we believe about ourselves or the sin we believe in others. That's where insecurities come from. And we all need this. And the only way we get this is by receiving. How do you receive? Thank you. And the way you train your mind is by every time you deviate from the truth, you thank him for the truth. And when you thank him, he resets you every time. Amen? So I love, I love reading the word because every single story I can insert my name there. And I might not have the same story, but I have the same need. 
I need to encounter the living God. My hope, and we're not there yet. I know I'm not even preaching this to its fullness yet. I can feel it in my heart. I'm like, that's why I want to go longer, but I'm not going to. Promise, Uncle Jay, I won't. Um, Promise you, bro, I won't. Don't throw things at me. Um, I know that that when we preach this in its fullness, and I'm I'm going, Jesus, you've got to do this in me, and when we receive it in fullness, it's going to get wild. And it gets wild because this is a rejuvenating, life-giving gospel that in the midst of the most painful, difficult situations, the most rough world that we live in, I have a message inside of me that's life. And so what it does in me and through me is it begins to demonstrate the heart of God to my own life, to those around me and then to the nations until he gets his reward. And so I have to keep eternity before me because it's not just before me, it's in my heart. I don't have the time to teach it, but one day I want it's to, it's a little deep, I think, for where we're at, but one day I want to teach on, on the garden, on paradise, because I... See, Jesus made you his garden what once was an external thing that we had to try to get back to, he's put into your heart and he's saying, I've made you the place we walk together. And so even in the end, when the new Jerusalem, which is us, it's the bride of Christ, when we go into that and experience the fullness of that, it doesn't mean that we don't have his fullness now. But you'll never, you'll never even be positioned to believe that about what God has for you if you still think you're stuck in something he's already dealt with. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying. It's like we've got to really put this thing in the grave so that we can live free. If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, our expectations for life need to change. And we we should maybe spend less time looking at the shortcomings, failures, and faults in our lives because Jesus isn't looking there. Spend more time receiving the fullness of the Spirit of Jesus in us and going, Lord, I don't know what that means for today, but I'm excited about it. I'm excited to see what you want to do in me and through me. Amen? Why don't you stand? I really love that um, when God talks about Moses, he talks about his friend. That the guy who represents, I mean, a covenant of law, a covenant of condemnation, the guy who represents that, Moses, even in that, because Moses never met the standards of the law, by the way, he was, he was pretty bad. Even in that, God looked at him and goes, it's my friend. I speak to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. If I can ask the Holy Spirit to do one thing today in our hearts, it would be this, that when you walk out of here, you would really know in your heart that there's nothing that separates you from him. That you are called to be a friend of God. You are a son, you are a daughter, and God wants to minister to you. He wants to reveal himself to you. Your life, we cannot settle for a Jesus incorporated experience, a Sunday morning thing. Like these Sundays are powerful because we get to get stirred up in the gospel, minister to Jesus, love him, exalt him. But we're going to go out from this place now. And the church didn't stop because we finished the service or the gathering. Like you are the church. And if you know who you are, whose you are, and how you're one with him, and nothing can change that, you'll run to him when it gets difficult. <laughs> And so my prayer is like Jesus, that we would walk out of this room so hungry, so hungry to be with him, so hungry to be with God, that he wants to reveal himself to me, that he's going to show himself to me. And so 
My joy is I'm in pursuit of him because he is passionately in pursuit of me. And he's made first contact and he said, come. So now it's just, Lord, I'm coming. And it's not based on a feeling and it's not based on goosebumps and it's not based on any of that. It's based on one thing. I actually believe. And so when you get alone with God, you go, God, I actually believe. You're right here with me. And then you let him do the rest. So I want to pray for you and then we're going to do one more thing before we leave. God, I thank you for this beautiful church. I thank you for this community. I thank you that, God, you're, you're posturing and positioning us in the fullness of your grace because it's a people of grace that are saying yes to the Great Commission and the fulfillment of your dream. Lord, you are liberating your church. You're liberating your church because we're born to be wild. We're born to run in the kingdom. We're, we're born to be those who carry the fire of the gospel, not to be those stuck in brokenness and sin when you paid the highest price and removed it. So Jesus, make us runners. Make us runners in the kingdom. Thank you for the fire of the Holy Spirit on our eyes, on our feet, on our hands, on our hearts. Thank you for the grace of God that would begin to wash over every mind and every emotion and every thought and every life right now. That we would never again settle for separation because you were separated from the Father so that we never had to be. That when you were on the cross and you cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? You had to go through a moment of being forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. You took separation upon yourself so that your people would never be separated from the Father. Jesus, I'm asking that you would brand us with the message of the gospel. Fill us with the person of the Holy Spirit afresh right now so that the fruit that comes from our lives is the fruit that you produce. And I want to speak to every heart and every mind right now, and I want to say this, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. You are. And Jesus didn't say it's slightly done. Jesus didn't say, I've done some of it. Jesus didn't say, I've done my part, it's yours. He said this, it is finished. There's nothing left to do except receive. And so we receive today, Jesus. We receive today. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your finished work and what that means for every heart and every life. Thank you that we've been born again. We've been born again out of something into something, out of brokenness into your life. And I thank you that you are not a God who asked us to get our act together. You're the God who said, I make all things new. So I thank you, Jesus. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for your church. And I ask that you would make a beautiful, holy example out of 24-7. God, we know that we're just a small expression, a growing expression that's, that's part of the bigness of what you're doing across the nations. And I'm asking, Lord, would you wash your bride? Would you power wash your bride across the nations with the purity of the gospel, Lord? Because the church is not called to be sexy. The church is beautiful. She's radiant. She's not trying to appeal to man. She's before the Lord, ministering to his face, glorifying him, exalting Him. And so we thank you, Jesus, that we can do that because of your grace. So I'm asking, Lord, do what I can't do this morning. So by faith, I release an impartation of the fire of the gospel into every heart right now. We take it, we receive it. Lord, there's some in this room I ask, don't let them live another day believing any less about you than the truth. Believing any less about you than that you are a perfect, good father who has done it all. Just believe. Just receive. And yes, it sounds too good to be true. I know. And this is the glory of the gospel. That it's so good and it's so true that it offends your mind so that it can release the spirit of Jesus in you. And so I bless you. I bless you 24-7. And as you go out this week, I release the gift of faith over every person in this room and I ask Holy Spirit, make us bold. 
bold to come before you without a hindrance. Bold to come before you without second guessing. Bold to be obedient because you put your obedience in us. Make us dreamers. Make us reformers. Make us revivalists because we have Christ in us. And I'm asking for an impartation of the joy of the Lord because it's good news. I'm asking for an impartation of joy that would strengthen and sustain us. We receive you, Jesus. We receive you, God. Take away all the masks. Take away all the burdens and the pressures, God, that you did not put on your church. Remove it right now, Holy Spirit. I ask in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. I release grace over this room in Jesus' name.